I love this season for all the right reasons, I hope. Um, I, I really love the music because it tells the story so beautifully and then brings us into that place where we can let that story just speak to our hearts like I hope it will uh, today. The reality of Christmas is a whole bunch of things that we're going to get to this morning, but hopefully you find a, a place where it touches your heart today. So you can imagine a post office uh, building, line going, stretching out the door, people in there all crowded in, lady in the front of the line, it's her turn, she gets up to the postmaster and lays the package on the the table and says, this, this has got to get to its destination by, uh, by, you know, December 25. And, you know, he's rolling his eyes. Everyone in line is saying, yeah, sure, like all of us. But she senses the tenseness in the room and she says, no, really, really, this is for my sister and her birthday is on uh, December 25th, and the guy goes, the post office guy goes, really? December 25th? He goes, what a bummer, you know, birthday on December 25th. He goes, I don't know, he goes, no one in my family's like that. He goes, thank God I don't know anyone who's born on December 25th. And the, it kind of, that kind of leveled the whole room until someone in a, in a kind of a loud whisper says, I thank God that I know someone born on Christmas. You see, one of the main realities of Christmas in this time is that there will always be a crowd, of a group of people, a place in which Christmas is not understood. Dangerously, for the church, sometimes as Christians, we don't understand. The, the day that we're walking into. I mean, we get all of that, but we get so caught up in the holiday that we really forget what it's all about. Or until that last moment or you hear that song or tomorrow night at Christmas Eve, you're singing Silent Night and you get the candle and you see the, the wax go down the candle. Maybe a tear rolls out of the corner of your eye and you get it. But a lot of people don't. So this is what I want you to do. Your, your exercise assignment for the first part of this sermon is this. Can you identify a troublesome or toilsome reality that confronts you presently? And, I, and I'm, I'm going to put some conditions on it. This isn't something that you can change. It's not something that you can fix. It's not something that you can grow out of or, or by your Christian maturity you're going to transform. It's just a part of the things that you walk in. It's just a place that doesn't seem to budge, but surrounds you. It's your reality. It's your context of something that seems to you right now just immovable. This beautiful story that we have this morning, the first half of it, is really a story that lets us into Luke's understanding of the realities in which Christmas takes place. And tomorrow night, as Marilyn 
brings the message of the glory of Christmas, which is the second half, and the angels and all of the majesty is the other half. But to get there probably has to hit where we are. And that's the reason for the first part of this story. In those days, Caesar Augustus um, sent a decree for a census that should be taken in the entire Roman world. The census was taking place while Quirinius was governor of Syria, and everyone went to his own town to be registered. So Joseph also went up to Na- from Nazareth and Galilee into Judea and Bethlehem to the town of David because he belonged to the house of David. By the way, if you look at the genealogies, Mary also belonged to the house of David. This is really, you know, God's just right on it, Right? He went there to be registered with Mary who had pledged to be married to him and was expecting a child. There are at least three realities that I want us to square with this morning so we don't feel alone in our own realities. The first and foremost reality is this occupation. Israel had been promised a land, a place to live and a place to be free and raise their children and to to worship God and all of that. And when they finally got a hold of it, they they only held that land for, for a short period of time in comparison until their own disobedience had taken over. And they were exiled off the land, right? Into Persia and all those places. And then in Nehemiah, and we're going to look at that a little bit, they came back to the land. But even then, for for the next five to almost 600 years, Israel continued to be dominated by occupation all the way to the time in which Jesus was born, all the way until 1948. Wow, you know, days that, that we're familiar with. They lived in the exile of the Romans or the, or the Syrians here or even the, 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 the half-blood king, Herod, who is part Jewish and part Muggle, I mean part Gentile. And, and so what's going on here is this whole sense of, of occupation. It was oppressive on them. And Jesus is born right in the middle of that occupation. Reality number two, simply put, is taxation. Census plus registration meant taxation. If they could figure out how many people were in Israel, census, and they figured out where they lived, registration, cha-ching, the tax bill was in the mail. And they were taxed brutally. Not for services and goods that they needed, but just because they could milk people for the money. And that too was a reality in which the Messiah was born into. And and finally, there's this whole series of situations that we should not forget about. Remember, the main elephant in the room, as it is said here at the very end of our passage, that Mary is expecting the unexpected. A child that is to be born of her, a virgin. Already, Joseph and Mary had lived with this reality. And they were just thinking, God's doing this. But Mary and Joseph also lived with the scandal and the gossip 
Mary and Joseph lived with the, the physicality reality. In the last days of her pregnancy, she rides a donkey and walks for the last 90 miles from, from Nazareth to Bethlehem. And sleeps on the ground every night. And, and gets to Bethlehem and there's no room for the inn in which she's going to give birth to a baby in the dirt. And there won't be her mama, her aunts, her sisters. There will be no one with her except Joseph, and he's a useless man. And a crowd of animals in a shelter for animals. You see, all these indignities were about it, and you could almost relate to this family and the power, powers powerlessness of the realities held over them. However, they are abundantly able in God to do what they need to do. You see, they held the promises of God like we can hold the promises of God. Things like this. All things work together for good who love God and are called according to His purposes regardless of the realities. This is a deeper reality. Or how about this? That's Romans 8.28 or 8.31. If God is for us, who could be against us? It's a deeper reality. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me, says Philippians 4.13. And I will never leave you or forsake you, says God to us in Hebrews 13.5. And the Apostle John, the, the younger one of Jesus' tribe, says this, Greater is he who is in me than he who is in the world. You see, Mary and Joseph and, and Jesus are defined by God's word and promise to them, not by the earthly realities. The earthly realities will come and go. And they are difficult and burdensome. And Jesus doesn't play bait and switch with us. Early on said, pick up your cross and follow me. The burdens of the things that fall upon us are these such realities. However, Christmas is for rejoicing. Listen to this. While they were there, the time came for the baby to be born, and she gave birth to her firstborn, a son. She wrapped him in cloth. King James, and this is important, swaddling clothes, if you remember Charlie Brown and placed him in a manger because there was no room for him in the end. You see, the rejoicing that is being revealed at this time is, is, is not yet stated until the angels come in the next verse. But I'm not going to talk about that. Marilyn's got some good stuff for you for tomorrow. You come back and bring some friends. It's going to be great. But the rejoicing is seen in what's happening here. The first thing is God's sovereignty is being upheld. Everything is happening right at God's call. 
Isn't that amazing that he moves this poor family 90 miles into position, pregnant, so that she can be in Bethlehem for this time? God is is right on whatever God is doing in all of our lives. Right now, He knows what your realities are. And yet knows the deeper reality of His Lordship in your life if, as we've already heard this morning, you claim that Lordship as your own. You bow under that and become a servant of the most holy God who is born as a child in Bethlehem all those years ago. And born anew to us if we make room for that. Secondly, the rejoicing is seen here and the angels will sing soon because the prophecy is fulfilled. She is actually born of a virgin. I wonder if Jerry and uh, Joseph and Mary, uh, you know, are we going to have a baby? What's going to happen here? None of the things that usually happen have happened so far. What's this all about? But not only is, is the baby born, the baby's born in Bethlehem and all the prophecies are fulfilled. Everything, just as God said it would, so we could sit here and, and, and sit in the power of the Holy Spirit under these scriptures and know what God is doing. And thirdly, this identity is modeled by the Holy Family. Jesus and his earthly mom and dad are leading the way by living the way. Let's just unpack the verse a little more. Swaddling clothes certainly means poor people's rags. But in some traditions, it also meant that these were the burial rags that were wrapped around the poor at the time of their death. Isn't it more than fascinating that Jesus is a doorway to the death of sin and the hope of us in our poverty? As, as he's born to die for you and me and everyone we know. He is born for this in our lives. And the manger means feed trough. That the Son of God who would feed all of us with new life was laid in a feed trough and set before the world. So behold, Jesus would say, I am the bread of life. Choose me. Feed from me and my word. And all of this, speaking not only to the identity of of, of this modeled reality that Jesus does what he asks us to do, but fulfilling prophecy and and the sovereignty of God. And no room in the end? Well, Jesus is here. To tell us that he knows what it means to be, uh, to go without common needs and wants to meet us in the place of those needs. There's no immunity for, for this family from the reality. They live in that reality, they, they hold that. It, Hebrews says it quite clearly in the fifth chapter and the eighth. And ninth verse. Although Jesus was a son, 
He learned obedience from what he suffered and once made perfect became the source of eternal salvation for all who obey him. We will suffer if we obey God. And it might be enough to say I'm done with that or it may just be enough for us to find our own identity in Christ and learn how to suffer to bring the word to people that we know and love. That that might in fact be the game plan. That if we could pick our cue from the Holy Family who, who didn't get perks and privileges, but lived in the same kind of world and opened their hearts and paid the price it's so easy to say today in our Christian world, well, I don't do that kind of Christianity. You know, I'm not sure what God's going to call us to next. But I'm sure it's going to be something that I can't do without the power of the Holy Spirit. All the stuff that I can do on my own, God says, that's great. Thanks, Jeff. But I don't need that. I need your poverty so that people will see what you do and say, Where does that come from? Does that reflect who God is? Hey, the story of Genesis 50, uh, 19 through 20, you know this story. This is Joseph's story. He was was, uh, determined that his whole family would bow down to him. They didn't like that. Uh, They sold him into slavery. They wanted to kill him. And of course, he becomes the Pharaoh's second in charge. And so when all those brothers come and they think they're going to get their comeuppance and they're kind of afraid, but they need food and, and they're stuck and they're fearful. And Joseph says this. Check this out. Don't be afraid. Am I in the place of God? You intended to harm me, but God intended it for good to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. Just, I mean, that could be New Testament, right? This is Genesis. So then don't be afraid, I will provide for your children. I know that the world and its conditions and its realities mean harm for us. It is warfare. It is sin. It is oppressive. But God means to turn the cross that was an instrument of the oppressive taxation and situation realities of the world against us. Jesus takes that same cross and turns it into more than just pretty jewelry that we wear around our necks. It has now become the symbol of our freedom. Because what was meant for our harm, God means for our good. And aren't we in the place of rejoicing for that? You see, we're in the position of of hanging on. And regardless of how it looks or how it feels right now, we are privileged to remember that God is always good no matter what we're thinking whether we think that or not. And, 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 and we are always loved, even when we don't feel loved. You see, our thinking and our feeling is so much defined by the realities, the temperature in the room. 
And God's saying, my reality for you is greater. I am with you. Who can be against you? So by way of application this morning, I just want us to, to, to envelop that whole sense of the, of the joy of this season. So the story of Nehemiah and Ezra is the return of Israel. After their, after their disobedience, they returned to the land, but they never really possessed the land much during their return until 1948. That was a long stretch. That's just amazing history right then and there. But once they got the walls built around Jerusalem, and Nehemiah decided that they would hear from their priest, and they would hear the law read in, in sequence, and they would stand before God and the priest, and they would hear the law. This is what happened. The people were crushed by their sin. They, they, they were weeping. And, and, and they were in huge grief because they realized how disobedient. And even though Jerusalem now had walls, it was still pretty much in ruin. And they looked back on their 70 years of captivity and the two generations that spanned it. And they looked back on the days of King David and, and most of Solomon's reign when, when things were beautiful and God was high and lifted up. But they had forsaken that. And the reality of the law crushed them. They repented unto sorrow which was good for their rebellion. But they began to move in a way in which they were in despair and hopeless in that grief. And so this famous verse comes to us from Nehemiah 8.10 where he says, go. They're weeping, right? They're in church. And, and he says, you know, God's taken care of that. Your sorrow proves it. Go now. Find choice food, sweet drinks, Send some to those who have nothing. This is sounding like Christmas. Prepare. This day is sacred to the Lord. Do not grieve, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. Wow. These are holy times. It's about the joy of the Lord being our strength because we, we come to that place in our lives where we realize that, that we can and only God can. And so, it, you know, it, 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 instead of despair and hopelessness and grief, we, we find ourselves in that place of great joy. Let the Lord be our strength. So this is a little bit clever, but uh, this is what I want you to see. Think about it this way. No God, no joy, right? No God, no joy. A lot of people do that. They, you know, because of where they're at, you know, they, they get worried, they get upset. You know, there, there's really no God in it right now. I'm just trying to find a parking spot in the mall, right? And so quickly it evaporates. But try this. Just change the word a bit. No God, 
no joy. And it doesn't matter where you're at. To know God is to know His joy. To surrender ourselves to God and what God has for us. To be able to say in our hearts and in our lives, Thy will be done is the key. Not, God, change these crazy people on the road or all these folks in line or this thing that I keep getting in the mail. Change that. And God says, no, I want to change you. I want to prepare you to live in that reality for my glory. This is a little poem that uh, I ran into this week and it says this, When God sent His Son, God made Him a man of sorrows so that He could know our grief. God made Jesus a servant so He could meet our needs. God made Jesus a sacrifice so that He could forgive our sins. God made Him a shepherd so that He could lead us to the Father's love. God made Jesus a storyteller so He could share the good news of the Gospel so our hearts could be filled with joy. One last little assignment that I want you to take with you today and and into Christmas. What part of Jesus do you need this morning? Do you need the man of sorrows to be with you in, in the grief of something in your life? Do you need a servant to meet a particular need that you're praying for right now? Do you need the Jesus of sacrifice Have you accepted Jesus Christ into your life the first time? Do you need the shepherd? Because while you may be a Christian, maybe being full of the love of God is is quite possibly distant from your heart this season because of the realities, because of what's going on. Do you need to hear, as the, as the hymn says, that old, old story? Do you need Jesus, the storyteller, to come to you once again and fill you with the joy that He has for your life?